This is Stephen Peckinmig, and so we're throwing your lanterns of liberty, your Sherpas of sanity. And we're here this afternoon with Matt Rogers, who is a Douglas County Middle School teacher. This is a first for us. We're really excited to have you with us on the show, Matt. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Actually, Matt is our first special guest. Thanks for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit, Matt, about what's your favorite thing about being a teacher? What made you want to be a teacher, and what do you like about it? I think one of the things that caused me to go into the teaching world was my old youth minister actually at the church that I went to when I was in high school. He invited me to help out with a middle school retreat and at first I didn't think I was going to like it, but I actually wound up really enjoying working with those kids in that age group. So, you know, I looked at various professions and teaching just seemed like the one that was the right fit for me. And the things that I love about teaching, the kids of course, the families and the community, but my specific age group, it's quirky and you always find something to kind of laugh about every day and it really is a rewarding profession too especially when they come back and visit and tell you how far they've come and the new adventures going on in their lives and you know things like that how long have you been teaching this is the end of my third year and i'm going into my fourth oh okay oh, congratulations thank you they say if you can make it three, you can make it five, and if you can make it five, you can make it 30. So between five and 30 <laughs> seems like quite lengthy, but that's... Wow. Oh, thanks for spending any amount of time teaching kids, because I know that's that's a challenging profession, and it can be tough. So for those years that you've been teaching, has it always been middle school? So I'm actually, I do sixth grade at the elementary level, and those three years have been at sixth grade, and I'm going to remain at sixth grade next year, and hopefully as long as I can. That's my favorite age group. I got really lucky in landing my first job with my favorite age group. Well, I was going to ask you, how did you decide, like, what was your thought process when you started considering, like, okay, yes, I want to be a teacher and this is what I want to teach. I started thinking about the younger grades, in particular kindergarten, first grade. God bless those teachers because they have to spend a significant amount of time not only teaching kids how to read and write, do math, one plus one, things like that, but they also have to teach kids how to go to school. Mm -hmm. And that's just something I know with my personality. I don't necessarily have patience, for lack of better words for right. it. I don't think patience is the right word, but I don't have the skill set to do that. And those years are so foundational that if you mess those years up, it's going to be permanent. It could be permanent. Right. And then I just kind of started thinking high school and with being 26 years old and looking like I'm in high school, <laughs> probably would be an he issue does look with young. boundaries. So um, that's where I kind of shot with that middle age group because they still have a lot to learn. It's such an important time in their lives. They determine what their values are and what kind of person they want to be when they grow up. And influencing that, I think, is my favorite part of that age group, being able to influence the kind of people that they're going to be when they grow up. Yeah, Megan, did you have any male teachers in eighth grade or under? I did. I had a, a couple where subject matter teachers. Mm -hmm. I had a male music teacher and I did have in eighth grade, in particular one that I'm remembering was my social studies teacher. Mm -hmm. And he was very knowledgeable about current events and the political situation. And that was the, around the time period where you're studying American history and civics. So I, I remember him quite well. But yeah, he was certainly wasn't Matt's age. And I never thought about very many young teachers like Matt and how can you relate to that age group because God bless the teachers that actually go into teaching looking to teach middle school kids because oh, yeah. that is such an awkward age there everything seems like everything to them little things to us adults are enormous in their lives and they could use a strong guide to help them get through that and thank you for doing that Matt. yeah that's that's awesome I, I had a male teacher for the first time in seventh grade and then again for eighth grade and those two years were great years for me and that doesn't take anything away from my 
previous teachers, but I do think, I don't know why, but at some level I felt like I connected with them better just because it's like, well, this is something new and novel. And I think it's great. I, I, I wish we had more guys getting into teaching, especially for boys. There's, you know, yeah. boys need role models to look up to. And the more, the better, assuming they're good role models. Male teachers specifically in the primary grades are kind of a hot commodity at the elementary level because mm -hmm. those are few and far between. And, you know, I really don't know the reason why that is. I know my reasoning why I chose for kind of that sixth grade. I do know that for a lot of students, I am the first male teacher that they have. Mm -hmm. I had one girl transfer from a different school within Douglas County into my classroom, and her mom told me that it took her about a week or two to get used to the fact that her teacher was a guy. It was just something different. It was a new experience. Hmm. That's fascinating. Do you think uh, it's easier for your students? I mean, do you see a difference between genders uh, clicking with you? Or is it is that not really a factor? You do kind of notice sometimes that the boys will, if you if they have a male teacher, the boys will kind of draw towards that male teacher a little bit more. It just depends on the relationships you have with all the kids. And something that I'm always trying to be fair about and conscious about is that you make time for all of the kids, not mm -hmm. just a specific set. Because the last thing you want is people coming at you saying, you know, you're playing favorites, or even the kids noticing. Because if the kids notice, then everyone notices. And it's just not a good situation to be in. Yeah. So just evening the playing field for all the kids. You know, I do lunch bunches, and the kids basically sign up on a day. And it's completely up to them. It's up to them to sign up. It's up to them to remember that they have that appointment with me to kind of teach them that life skill too of remembering. And everyone and anyone is welcome to sign up. That's kind of one of my strategies I use. But even small things, I'm like making sure that you're picking different kids when you're asking questions. Yeah. If you pick the kids who raise their hands all the time, then the kids who aren't raising their hands aren't gonna be challenged, they're not gonna be thinking. And then it could lead into things where other kids might think you're playing favorites or whatever. So the popsicle stick trick where you just pick a random name out of a cup with a popsicle stick keeps them on edge. It keeps them engaged and the playing level is even. I, I you could uh, also, I'm not recommending this, but my son's great teacher. Again, I'm a first male. The way he kept us engaged was he'd throw chalk at our direction. And, and, and he gave me a, a certain nickname that was, you know, tattooed for the next two years until I hit high school. Uh, that little rude name. Oh, on, on but, but yeah, yeah, you chuck uh, chalk at us and just make sure that we're uh, that is kind of like, oh, what what's going on over here? Somebody's not checked in, so uh, yeah, I feel like I'd get in trouble for that. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> not Things have changed, that. I think, since we were in school. Yeah, what's the one thing you wish that parents knew about school that they probably don't know? Like, if they knew this, their lives would be easier. The students' lives would be easier. I think it's to remember. I'm trying to figure out a way, a kosher way of saying this. Just say it. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> I think it's to remember it. that your kid's not perfect. What? I mean... <laughs> you haven't met my kids. <laughs> at least at my school, I can only speak from my experience. It's 100% prevalent, but you do see it. You get those parents that think that their kids are not, but they have no flaws and that they're perfect kids mm -hmm. and you know, they can do no wrong. And then you get a different picture of them inside the classroom or outside at recess, and it's a completely different story than what they expect. I have had parents who, the minute I mention something, they look at me and they go, yep, it was probably my kid, and that's that. And, you know, those parents are great because they acknowledge the fact that their kid still has some improvement to do in terms of behavior, but the parents who believe that their kids can do no wrong and their kids, you know, are always in the right, that's where you get some red flags, and that's where it begins to make my life and some other people within the building who wrap around these kids, it can make it difficult. How often do you have to hand out? Well, there's two prongs to this question, but it, it takes a form of discipline and it takes a form of a grade. Discipline is administered 
or grade is given. And then the parent, rather than saying that's the appropriate discipline or I'm supporting the school and the teacher here, turns around and fights you on it and undermines your own credibility or says, no, you know what? It wasn't a, a B minus. My child deserves X. How often does that happen? And how do you deal with it? It happens rarely, but how you deal with it is you have the classroom data to back it up. If you can put hard copy examples of their child's work in front of them, and you can say, this is why I gave them this grade, and you can demonstrate, you can show the actual work that the child has done, there's no refuting that. Whether it be their effort or their lack of effort, whatever the case may be, just have data to back it up. And the same thing goes with behavior. If you have to give out a consequence, you need to make sure that you have data to back up behavior. And that can be anything from office referrals to anecdotal notes to things that other people within the building are noticing to even email complaints from other parents. That Those are taken very lightly though. We don't necessarily take those into full consideration all the time because you don't know what the dynamics outside of the building are like to how often do we get complaints from kids about this child and are we beginning to notice a pattern of behaviors amongst different people and if we are that's kind of lending to the fact that something is happening that needs to be taken care of hmm. so do you think parents are afraid of their children not being perfect and that's why they continue to insist their children are perfect or do you think that they just truly don't see that their children are different away from them than they are under their noses? I think it just depends on the parent and the family. You get a lot of different dynamics with different families. And some parents don't know that their kids misbehave the way they do. Some might be afraid that their kids aren't perfect and that they're even raising them wrong. And then some parents, honestly, are just overworked. You know, I've had kids with 10 or 12 siblings, and that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to raise that many kids. Yes. You know, like I couldn't even imagine coordinating that many schedules. And I think it's it's just a variety of factors. Do. It could be financial factors too. I mean, some parents might be working over their limits because they need to keep a home over their their head. In Colorado, it's hard to manage a home financially now without making six figures or more. So and certainly the Denver area. It's and we see, bad. and especially in Highlands Ranch and Castle Rock and Douglas County. It's hard. Hmm. So when you think about education here locally, what are the issues that you're really interested in? What are the things that are changing? And again, what are the things that parents ought to know that they might not be as up to speed as they should be? A lot of things that are changing, sometimes not for the best. We've had a lot of school shootings just nationally recently with Parkland and the most recent one in Texas. Yep. You know, and these are tragic events and everyone seems to have the right solution, but one of the things that I think is a leading cause to it is just mental health. I think mental health is one of the things that we're still trying to figure out today with today's kids. And part of that could lend to the fact that kids are so plugged into their phones and social media, mm -hmm. they lose resiliency in doing that. I don't know if you know this, but on social media, if you get a like on a post or something, say Instagram, a kid has a post a little picture on Instagram and they get a like, it actually releases a certain amount of dopamine into their heads and it okay. becomes an, it can almost become an addiction. I know of some kids who will actually post pictures and they'll take it down if they don't have 100 likes on it. Wow. Even family members of my own who are younger who have those accounts, I could show you every single one of them has more than 100 likes and it becomes almost like this competition. And they start seeing what all these other kids are posting. Oh, this person has a perfect life and this person has a perfect life. Why don't I have a perfect life? That can in turn affect their confidence and that can in turn affect their resiliency to get through things that are tougher that maybe would have been, I don't want to say easier, but less challenging, I guess, 
for people who were raised when social media was not prevalent. Hmm. And I believe that can cause some mental health issues, So specifically with confidence. I, right, and I'm not putting you on the spot here, but the most famous example, the Columbine example, mm -hmm. I think was in 1999, when did Facebook start? Well after that. And I know you're not saying it's a one-to-one -one relationship. It probably is a factor for sure. But the mental health of the whole nation, whether you're talking about suicides in the military or violence in the culture or school shootings, that's serious stuff, heavy stuff, the opioids problems that the country has. I don't think there is any single factor that drives people to these bizarre behaviors or addictions. But do you think that there is an appropriate age that kids should... I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here with this one. Appropriate age that kids, one, should have phones, and two... For social media, or do the two go hand in, in hand? Is it possible to... <laughs> I'm going to show my, my, you know, outdated thinking with this. Is it possible to give your kids a flip phone? Or is that, are they just going to be laughed out of the Actually, building? I think if Verizon, you can get a flip phone for free now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Right, um, but they'll be ridiculed for that, and that this is some problems. I mean, what I hear parents say, and I don't buy it for a second. Oh, I have to get a hold of Junior because of some random thing. Like life couldn't possibly exist without a phone, even though cell phones are a relatively recent part of our lives. That's an interesting question. Recently, eight of our nine middle school principals in Douglas County decided to ban cell phones next year. They, they are, should be applauded. Where do they are they getting a recognition awards? I mean, some sort of standing ovation. They des they deserve it because one of the reasons behind why Crestville Middle School decided to do it was because they finally got enough technology within the building that cell phones are no longer needed for research. Which I don't understand why teachers would like kids to do that anyways because you know for a fact they're not researching. They're going to be over there on Snapchat or whatever. To answer your question in terms of social media and cell phone usage. You know, I think it just depends, again, on family circumstances. I know it, it, sometimes communication is really important, especially with kids who have split parents. I would encourage parents to monitor the phones, heavily monitor those phones, heavily monitor social media, specifically Snapchat. Snapchat Aren't you inviting their privacy, Matt? They don't have a right to privacy, their kids. Oh, no. What? <laughs> Did you say a child doesn't have a right to privacy? They, 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 when it oh, comes no, no, to... No, when no, it no, Matt, Matt, Matt. Where have you gone wrong with you, Matt? <laughs> what do you mean? My, my six-year-old doesn't have a right to privacy? Not on a cell phone. <laughs> not when you're Chester, out there, Matt. Not when Chester the molester is trying to get a hold of him. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> but, but, you know, the fact is there's a lot of... Uh, right? There's a lot of parents out there that says, I can't monitor what they're doing on the internet. I... Can't well, see what's in their room. I don't want and to. And one of the things that I tell my students when it comes to privacy is that my email account can be, anyone can get an email from my email account if they wanted to. Yeah. It, through Quora. If my email account's not private and there could be confidential information in there, there certainly is not private. And if the district or someone has to get in there for whatever reason, they can and will. And they better be using that email account appropriately. As far as Snapchat goes, Snapchat is this app where kids take pictures and send them to each other in the app. The picture disappears in 30 seconds. It's gone. Now Snapchat saves the pictures, of course. So there's this database with thousands and thousands of pictures of God knows what. The other thing, too, there's a feature on it where when you go to search for your friends, it shows a little map of where all your friends are. And if your kids are friends with people that they don't know or someone who's pretending to be a kid but could be someone else who's really dangerous, that feature is automatically enabled on Snapchat. And all it takes is for him to get in the car and drive down your street. 
again, it's 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 Snapchat's a scary app, and you have to watch it and monitor it. Instagram is kind of the same way. Kids will have they have these bios that tell you know I'm 12 or 13, and I go to the CMS or whatever it might be. And if you see a little thing called a Finsta next to it. That's code word for kids saying fake Instagram because my parents are watching me and they have another Instagram out there that their parents don't know about. Oh, well, see. Thanks for bringing that value uh, to the, the show here. That's good. That's real good. You're up on with all the, uh, the latest ingredients. Well, along the mental health lines, so when your child is very small, a lot of times parents will put a device in front of them to help them watch TV or otherwise be entertained. And, and we talk about digital learners being very young nowadays, but it kind of teaches the kids to have devices as part of their lives from a young age. And then my observation is that kids have difficulty with human person-to-person interaction after that. On the topic of these school shootings, some of them were perpetuated by young men who were disaffected by girls who had rejected them. And rather than knowing how to talk to them and work out conflict, or even just unplug and walk away, these kids showed up with firearms and started hurting people because they didn't know how to handle a rejection at the personal level. And I don't know how much devices have to do with that and not spending enough time on person-to-person interaction, but it, it sounds like it definitely is affecting mental health in ways that are not yet well understood. What do you know about a mental health services and what do you see as being the up-and-coming issues with that? Well, so I know the district, the at least Douglas County and other school districts, especially in the wake of Parkland and other school shootings, we've been very vigilant in watching our children and watching the kids and making sure that if they make any threats, those threats are taken seriously and followed up on. Okay, I'm glad that you're doing that. But what was it about Parkland? I mean, we've had lots of school shootings. Right. They seem to be increasing in, in number and frequency. It seems like you're saying, hey, Parkland triggered some new awareness. Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying is just the recent number of them. You're right in saying that the first one was Columbine, but everyone pointed their finger at Marilyn Manson with Columbine. And everyone pointed their finger at bullies with Columbine when there was really hardly no evidence to prove to the fact that they were bullied or it was Marilyn Manson. That No one booked Marilyn Manson in Colorado for years after. And granted, unless you're into his kind of filth, that wouldn't really affect you, but it's still not fair that he got blamed for something he had no control over. When it comes to now, we're seeing an increase in it. I don't know if the numbers, the number of incidents around the country have been the same and the news media is blowing it out of proportion. I mean, certainly the mass shootings are not the same, but if you think about the number of schools in the United States and how many incidents that they might have with someone bringing a weapon to school or something like that, we're not really going to know about that because no school district's going to want to publish that kind of information. But when it comes to something like Parkland and even Sandy Hook, the bigger, the more tragic events, I personally believe it is a mental health deal. And I think some of the reasons are we don't understand why. So, right. No, totally agree with that. And anybody, I think, who argues, oh, I have all the answers is probably not right. Earlier you had talked about, these are the things that we're looking for. What are the things that you, what are some indicators? What are you watching for? Indicators of threats. A lot of the things that we look for is direct threats, which are, I'm going to go home and shoot someone, to vague threats. I won't be here tomorrow. It can be dicey in terms of I won't be here tomorrow means, oh, I have a dentist appointment. Or I won't be here tomorrow could mean I'm going to go home and kill myself. 
you almost have to take everything literally nowadays. We also look for kids who have a pattern of saying things like that. One of the things that we get prepped on as teachers when we come in is if we have a kid who has a pattern of suicidal ideations or this or that, they tell us before the school year starts so that we know to keep an eye on that kid. And if it fits their pattern, then that's one of the things that we look for and that's one of the things that we follow up on. You know, the next... Sounds like your profile. (sighs) Sorry, we don't have to go down that road. Well, I mean, there's harmful profiling with a racial undertone or, or... a prejudicial profiling and then there's Behavior. real yeah which it sounds like is what you actually are doing because you have to understand what these kids are like and you have to understand what warning signs are and you have to understand what could be nothing but it could be something some of them do have serious mental disorders and disabilities that are even diagnosed and we just have to keep an eye on it you know if it's something that's been diagnosed and i know about it and it's on an iep or a 504 plan or something like that and then he says if I'm going to go home and do this and hurt myself and da-da-da, the next step in the line would be an immediate report to the school psychologist. And the school psychologist will do what's called a threat assessment, which could take anywhere between 20 minutes to three or four hours, depending on how well the first portion goes, which is called the screener. And then after that, they follow up with the parents, and the parents they develop kind of like a safety plan for the child when the child is at home. Did the other kids know that those no. kids are not? No, this is all private confidential information that's not even shared with staff who don't interact with this kid. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's only three or four people within the building that know about these issues. The people, it's basically on a need-to-know basis. So how many kids are in your school, and and of those, what percentage are getting help? So we have 340 kids in my building. What percentage, I don't know, because like I just said, I'm not privy to that information unless the student walks into my classroom next year. I know in the past I've had a few that I've had to keep an eye on. You know, my first year I had one that had some pretty serious concerns. And then last year I had a few. I, I don't like putting numbers on it. Right. For, and then this year I had some too. So, I mean, Do you have any sense for how overworked the school psychologist is? Yes. The thing is, is she's overworked. But she's, she's phenomenal in what she does. Right. So our school psychologist is currently wrapping up her doctorate program. She has a passion for what she's doing, which is good. I couldn't do her job because some of the stories that she tells me are just frankly heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So one of the common complaints that I've heard is that at the high school level and even sometimes the middle school level, counselors, especially by some of the old school parents, are seen as being there to help kids through their academic path. So what do I need to study to get into college if I want to go into this career field? Or what do I need to do if I want to be accepted into a military academy? But then a lot of times those same professionals are sought after for mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So what is your philosophy on separating that? You have these folks that are there for career and academic guidance and those folks that are there for mental health guidance. Right now, a lot of times those people are one and the same. My philosophy is leave it to the psychologists and let them, because that's a, that's a field that you can't make any mistakes in. You really need to know your stuff. Whereas the counselors, the academic counselors, I think they should be split. In a perfect world, I think they should be split. Now, in terms of the number of psychologists that are available and what that ratio is, I think I heard one to 900 kids was what a high school psychologist was facing. I mean, that's a lot of kids, assuming all of those kids have mental health problems. My philosophy would be to leave it to the professionals. 
Well, I think you get into issues of resource allocation. That's mm -hmm. unfortunately in the public sphere, which public schools are in the public sphere, you have limited resources. Yeah, in, in my experience, and I went to, a, you know, I think there was 350 kids at our high school. It was a private high school. We didn't have a school psychologist. Maybe we should have, but we had a career counselor and that was it. I mean, the whole idea of having a psychologist is kind of foreign to me, but I know that's becoming more and more of a standard and for good reason. Well, I think part of the problem also, some parents don't want the school to have anything to do with that. They're saying, this is my child. I'm the parent. I will tend to their mental health needs. I mean, there's pros and cons to that. Certainly, yes, that is the parent and they have sovereign right over their children. But on the other hand, what if they don't know something? Or if they're in the denial and to bring right. that conversation. Well, what if they're causing it, which is the worst possible oh, right. outcome? And the other thing that you need to be aware of is when a student or a child is seeing a psychologist in the school, it's not therapy. That psychologist is teaching them skills and strategies to build on to help whatever they're going through. So say, for example, a kid has a diagnosis of anxiety and OCD. A lot of times what you'll see is that with the OCD, will set off the anxiety and vice versa and they get wrapped up into this kind of snowball effect and the, so the psychologist is going to teach that kid how to break that snowball effect in the moment and really start giving them the skills that they need. It's not sit down, talk therapy, let me give you advice and here's how you should handle this situation. It's look at what color your shoes are because that'll distract you from whatever is throwing your anxiety off or you know, go for a walk and take some, go breathe for a second, things like that. It's the actual physical skill set and strategies that they're being taught, not necessarily. And again, this is just my experience. I can't say this for the entire school district, not therapy. So maybe it needs to be, the services offered need to be better understood. I, I think by parents, yeah. I think especially by those parents who think that there's that line of, I will take care of the mental health and you take care of the academics. And then you have to look at it too. Honestly, there are some parents who can't afford the mental health aspect. And it is an asset that the psychologists are there because that, they, they get that service and that help. Well, and certainly this is a complex discussion we're not going to solve in a short podcast here, but we appreciate the perspectives that you've given Thank us you on so this much. matter today. Absolutely. Um, and we will definitely invite you back for the future because we know that you have a lot to say and we have barely scratched the surface on what the teaching profession is about. So thanks again, Matt. We really appreciate you coming on here today. Thank you Thank for you. having me. I appreciate it.